So yeah, j just to give some background then, Jonathan, uh, as you were alluding to. So uh, when, when Jonathan phoned me uh, or sent me an email asking me if I'd be interested in the book club, uh, it was really good timing because I've just finished reading, uh, I think more than a hundred books actually over the last couple of years. Uh, as the basis of writing my own book. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I, I wrote the, all the documents for the RIBA plan of work. And uh, I've written quite a few books on design management, but I felt the time was necessary to, you know, if you look up the ante in terms of what I see. So when he asked me if I would do one book, I kind of pondered for a week and I said, well, I'm interested in doing this, but actually I want to do six books. And one of the reasons I wanted to do six books was but I just get amazed that I'm, I'm a great fan in serendipity, right? And and sometimes, you know, I, I don't structure the books that I read because, and I find that sometimes the book that has got no seemingly no relevance to me brings some amazing ideas. And uh, I'm going to show you a book at the end that I was reading at the weekend that kind of underlines that comment, uh, but I'll not give away what that book is just now. Uh, so that's part of the context. Uh, and, and so when he said six books, I mean, I could have probably had another three sets of six books, but um, uh, those, these, the six that I've got here are obviously ones I plump for. There is a lot of crossover, which you would expect between the books. But uh, anyway, without further ado, I'll, I'll get going. Uh, but I think for me, one of the main reasons that we need innovation is, is because of net zero. And uh, again, something I didn't mention is, uh, I mean, my, my role at WSP is, is head of digital innovation. And what that really means is that I've got to innovate into live projects. So I'm always looking for the clients that want to be at the edge of innovation. So um, currently I've got two clients uh, and obviously because of NDAs, I'm, I'm limited to what I can say, but both of these are about looking at programs of projects rather than a single project. So I'm, I'm lucky to be innovating into live projects. But like I say, I think net zero is at the top of the tree. Uh, what I tend to say about COVID is COVID in some ways, I don't think it's changed what innovators do at all, but it, it, what I would say is that the analog tail has certainly been pulled along. And I mean, one of my concerns pre-pandemic was, was the gap between the innovators and you know business as usual was getting wider. So I think COVID's been good in trying to close that gap slightly. Uh, so a couple of points there. And of course, the other thing that I constantly uh, my mind choose is really this whole topic about, you know, to what extent do we collaborate and to what extent uh, do innovators have to have their own space to come up with ideas? Because, you know, you know, the old classic one uh, about Henry Ford saying, well, if I'd asked them what they wanted, they would be they would be asking for faster horses. And I think sometimes when uh, you're in, uh, well, it used to be post-its, now it's mural kind of rooms uh, with people populating things. Uh, I think that is a requirement to, to collaborate, but I think a lot, a lot of innovation just comes from uh, people trying to think of ideas and then take them to market. And the, the interesting thing about this quote as well about faster horses is it turns out it, it's not true. And, and uh, some AI researcher actually found that the quote attributed to Henry Ford came from a conference in 1966 because they, they tracked all reference to the, to the quote. So, so the interesting thing is that some people get attributed to inventing things when, when they haven't actually done it. And, and of course, the other thing in one of the books, I don't have on the list, uh, but there was another book, I can't remember what it was called, but I mean, it tells you that Henry Ford's production line actually came from the Chicago meat packers. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, a number of the 
books I've read recently underline is that, you know, as we know, there's no such thing as a new idea, but it's how to create ideas, I think, is, is important. Now, another thing, because obviously a construction industry is my day job, and some of you might be in infrastructure, but uh, a question I've posed recently to people, which seems to uh, uh, hit some people's buttons, uh, is, you know, is construction a methodology or a philosophy? Uh, and it's a really, I, I, I do uh, counsel you to ask that question because, of course, most contractors would say, well, it's a methodology, of course, because, uh, you know, I put one brick on top of the other, I take the, the drawings and I, and I make something, it's a methodology. But I would argue that the, the reason that we're not gaining the, you know, productivity, had, well, sorry, manufacturing industries had 160% productivity improvements for the last 10 years. And the reason I think construction industry is not capitalizing on those is because people see it as a methodology. Now, if clients keep uh, pushing bespoke briefs, if architects keep designing uh, bespoke buildings, then nothing changes. So some of the projects I'm doing just now are about that end-to-end -end transformation. You've got to change the design process if you're going to capture those gains. So I think that's... Uh... So anyway, just a couple of kickers into the first book. Dale's first book is The Nature of Technology by W. Brian Arthur. Now, I'm going to answer uh, Jonathan's question because I think I, I read this book, I think about four months. Yeah, I read this at Christmas, actually, this year when I was on holiday. And I think, Jonathan, the answer is this is your next book. This this book actually blew me away. I've, uh, and, and obviously, because I'm, I'm using this reading to, to write my own book, uh, when I'm reading a book, I mark up things of interest, which is quite, quite easy for me to pull comments out. But this one was just absolutely incredible. And what this really tells us is that, well, first of all, I mean, we, we, we talk about futurists and futurists are seeing, you know, we think about that as science fiction. But I think what this book tells us is, look, the pipeline of technologies that are usable, going to be usable in the next day is actually predictable. I mean, we can actually see what things are coming at us. So, so yes, whilst the future is always difficult to predict, I think the technologies that we'll use are actually easily predictable. So I think that's a good takeaway. The other thing the book talks about is combinations of technology. And, and one I like is that the in the Middle Ages, this is not in the book, this is one of my own ones, but Brunelleschi invented the scale drawing that we, we still use as a paradigm to this day. And I think what this book says is, is two technologies coming together that create a paradigm shift. And the interesting thing about the Middle Ages is that's when large scale paper became available. So even if Brunelleschi had, had devised a way of doing a scale drawing, he wouldn't have been able to deliver it without paper coming to market at the same time. So it's that combination. But when you get to the back of this book, what you see at our fingertips now is like hundreds of technologies. So I, I think we will get to a new paradigm shift in the future because there's just so many technologies uh, that we can actually use. Now, the other interesting thing is, although we can predict the technologies that are going to come to fruition, uh, innovation is driven by the smashing of those kind of technologies. So, and those technologies and combinations are really difficult to prevail. You know, it's, it's really difficult to see which will come to market, which, of course, is what the venture capitalists are trying to do all the time. Uh, next point is technology will drive an era of continual change. So we've got to get, I mean, some people think, uh, you know, just like CAD changed the way that we do things that we'll, we'll, we'll use BIM or we we'll use technology and we'll get to a new steady state. I don't think that steady state will ever 
be uh, there for, for a long time. Although I know in the future, the professions, the Suskins do talk about an era where things are really hard and that maybe things stabilize. So I think that's something definitely worth talking about. Uh, and the other thing is that whole thing. I think a lot of people see the current ways of working as like almost like a, um, a crutch. So that uh, resistance to change is just about the, the certainty of understanding what you've always done. And, and you know that there is a big fear about uh, dipping into new technologies. Uh, um, I think people actually increasingly are doing that. It's like, you know, I'm too busy to, to, to pay attention to this. But I think the other thing is there's just so many topics that have come to fruition. Uh, and, and on top of that, we're trying to change culture, you know, uh, diversity and all these other topics. So I think one of the challenges just now is that people just get this wall of noise of the things that they're supposed to look at, you know, ethics, diversity, and so on. And it just gets harder and harder for people to change. And, uh, and certainly, I mean, one of the things I talk about all the time is I see a lot of uh, uh, innovative effort being about optimizing traditional ways of doing things. And I think a paradigm shift needs a completely different approach. So, so anyway, I, I, I took a lot of things out of this book and it was absolutely, it made my Christmas actually this year. It just blew me away. Um, it shows how sad I am. But anyway, <laughs> now um, Crossing the Chasm was another one uh, which I read about four years ago. Again, this was another Christmas read uh, for some bizarre reason. But this, this made me uh, super happy because what this book is, it's fundamentally a marketing book. But actually what it taught me is that, that you know, so the blue is the kind of early uh, adopters and, uh, sorry, the green's early adopters. And, but the blue is really where you want to be. If you're gonna change an industry, you, you need to get across this chasm here into the blue. But, but what this book taught me was that the clients in the blue, and I get a lot of clients like this, that we get PQS coming through for a project and uh, the client says, we want innovation, give us examples of how you will use innovation. And so you give them all these ideas, you get shortlisted, you go to the interview and you set them out and the client goes, oh, this is great. So where have you done this? And you go, well, these are ideas, you ask for ideas. He said, oh, no, no, we, we, we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be a guinea pig for you. So that is the blue clients. Blue clients want case studies. And certainly I've experienced this a few times. If I go into a blue client with green content, um, I get resistance. But what I find is the more projects I deliver, the more I have case studies, the easier it is to then deliver to the blue clients. So from an industry point of view, the, the, the focus needs to be on the green because the green are the people actually doing the innovation, but the green need actually really unique clients. And again, the book says, if you're working for a, a green client, it's, it's likely that they are trying to push the boundaries, got their own ideas. So you do have to meld your ideas to, to those sort of clients over here. So, so I, I think that was a huge takeaway that it really helped me to understand uh, how that those different clients work on. Um, now, another couple of things here. So we've covered the left and right hand clients. Um, we'll come on to the intuition in a few minutes because I think that's a key topic that some other books pick on as well. Um, um, we're also looking at this whole, what is disruption? I get that all the time. Where's the disruption going to come from? And maybe that's something we can talk about. Uh, uh, my own view uh, from another book written by Thomas Moore as well called Zone to Win is that the incumbents always have an advantage. So I think uh, the, the future is going to be driven by existing companies, but it's how they collaborate with technology companies that will be key to that paradigm shift. 
And of course, uh, the other thing is that, you know, it's all good and well setting a vision that goes beyond what we spoke about in the last book, but at the same time that you've got to be pragmatic if you're going to deliver technology into projects today. So, so quite a few things in this book, and, and it really was, uh, that really unlocked a lot of the problems that I had in selling and presenting to clients about three or four years ago. So that's the first two books. And uh, again, what for me, what those illustrate is just how challenging it is uh, delivering innovative approaches, approaches and getting clients to engage. Uh, and, and so the first question uh, for, for you all to start chipping into is, uh, you know, what, what mechanisms and measures do you think we should do to try and deliver innovation faster? So going back to this, how do we get more green? And then how do we get more blue to adopt the green faster? Uh, so that's the, really what the essence of the first question is. None of the books that I've got here uh, are about customer experience. So you'll see people are now talking about UI and UX, and it's everything's about the customer experience. Well, in, in a sense, Andy, I think that it's how you pitch to a blue person is, is making it sound safer. So, so there is a pitch thing, because you, you can make something that you've done on a couple of projects sound... Uh, risky and dangerous, or you can make it sound, oh, these guys are a safe pair of hands and, and all that sort of stuff. So, but that's back to the point. It's not necessarily about technology. It's about even marketing skills that you need to sell technology, which is, again, what Crossing the Chasm is all about. Yeah. Pirates in the Navy, look, I, I, you know, my last organization in WSP were huge. We've got 50,000 staff and uh, of course, my ideas are, you know, I'm definitely the pirate without, without uh, a doubt. And uh, I find it really tough sometimes uh, to uh, lead transformation in a big organization, which is resistant to change. Uh, and so this book, uh, you know, it did tell me a few things and it resonated with some of the other things that I've kind of read as well. And I've, I've got a, a process on a Friday. I, I never try and do project meetings on a Friday because they, they're, they're the sort of thing that just, I don't know, I, I get very negative vibes. So I always have calls on a Friday afternoon with other innovators or uh, other with tech companies and people that are pushing to the future because it's just a great way for me to end the week with a really kind of positive vibe of what about what I do. So so this book was quite good because I mean a lot of it's quite obvious uh, things about politics and so on in larger organisations. But uh, I mean I think the first point is most relevant. Most businesses are are and this again is back to Thomas Moore's writing as as well is most businesses are, are run to do what business is usual and delivering change and innovation into projects is, is not, um, you know, what they're used to doing. But I, I thought the other uh, thing that was interesting is, you no, know, he says in innovation labs can actually be a, a detrimental to innovation culture because it's the same as BIM. We created BIM as something that was over here and now we've got like traditional ways of doing things and BIM seen as something outside that because we didn't integrate it into what we do. So I, I get the whole argument that if you try and create an innovation team, it's actually a bad thing because it just encourages the business as usual team to say, well, we don't have to worry about innovation. That's the There's a team over there doing it so we can just carry on doing what we're doing. So quite a, quite a few things have come out of this book. And uh, But the other thing, again, which is, comes back to the green and the blue of the, of the innovation curve is developing ideas is, is, is really tough. Because again, because if unless you've got those case studies, um, it's really difficult to scale it. So, so for, for me, the big challenge is getting ideas, finding the clients that, that they'll stick with, 
And then again, getting the case studies, because the case studies are what you can then do to cross the chasm. So in that sense, that's where there's a connection from this book back into the Crossing the Chasm book. And then the, I think the second last point there uh, uh, really is that, you know, what is innovation and isn't just about ideas or inspiring people. It's definitely about how you change process and workflow and, and so on as well. So it, it's, it's a combination of different things. And uh, and then I think the bottom one is really, really interesting because, uh, you know, you've it's it's not just about having ideas. You've got to, to get people to change their business models around them, because unless you change the business models, then you're, you're not going to drive change. So. So, for example, in the construction industry just now, I think where we're stuck uh, is around procurement. And, and and I go back again the, the the I think the the ultimate irony with the construction industry was the scale drawing 600 years ago uh, disintermediated the the master builder from the architect because before that the master builder was on site I mean I, I just find it unbelievable that you know before the middle ages you know th there was no drawings for buildings so a lot of the great buildings that you see prior to the middle ages they weren't built from a set of drawings that was someone on site saying do this do that you know think about things like the Colosseum. there was no drawings to build the Colosseum. i mean it's absolutely unbelievable but i actually find that that scale drawing is now a big blocker because that disintermediation of the designers and the contractors is now the challenge. We're trying to hook them up and we haven't come up with a model that, that resolves that. And, and, and recently, uh, you know, arguably we've stabilized time and cost, but we haven't solved the, the quality thing. And Edinburgh schools, Grenfell and so on is why everyone's now looking at that whole kind of value thing. But I, I think that um, that's the biggest, that's one of the reasons, again, it's back to that philosophy or methodology. Um, I mean, we've got to change the philosophy of what we do, which means we've got to change the business models uh, if we're going to get uh, to the innovation of the future. So anyway, that was a few uh, extracts from the book. And um, and again, back to point, the reason I have the calls on a Friday is that sometimes innovating is tough. You know, people are constantly telling me I can't do things that I've already done. Uh, and, you know, that's back to, a, you know, what is that safe harbour? And I like the idea of the innovation festival, because I think things like that are, I think we need to give people that are doing the innovation, the green work, the, the, the surety and the confidence that like keep push, 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 because you no, know, you're in the right place. It's the other people that are telling you uh, what, that they, that you can't do things are not, not going to be the future and well, might not even exist in the future. So, so in a sense, we've already touched on this, but I guess what I'm trying to find is what is that safe harbor? Maybe it's an innovation festival, maybe it's hackathons, but but I think we do need a, a place for innovators to showcase things, to debate them, because uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with really robust and rigorous debate. You know, the, the, the sort of thing that happened in the Renaissance. The next set of books, uh, uh, I guess, are all about the more kind of softer topics. Uh, now, I, I got into this whole uh, kind of, uh, let's say, a whole number of books around decision making. Uh, again, one of my Christmas uh, kind of purchases about six or seven years ago was a Harvard Business Review on decision making. And it it was probably the best 20 quid I'd, I'd uh, kind of spent in my life because it really opened my eyes to how we make decisions and projects and how most of those decisions are actually made intuitively. 
you know, it's back to the, the BIM task group trying to say, well, what questions do you ask? Well, as a designer, I don't ask questions. I get my pen out and I draw and I sketch using the knowledge in my, in my mind. So I was quite interested in this whole decision-making thing. The next book is Gut Feelings by Gert Gigerenzer. And this one's quite interesting because it, 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 it talks about this whole thing about, you know, you know, and I guess what it's saying is that sometimes actually having more data doesn't actually make allow you to make better decisions. And there's a great one, the, the one at the bottom, this take the best. They, they had uh, one team of, uh, in, a, in a project they did, they had one team just really using their intuition to predict the result of uh, baseball games. And they had another team using much more advanced processes. And what they found was that the team using their intuition were just as good as getting the uh, outcomes as the team using, uh, you know, uh, more detailed information. So, so, and again, so the, the, so the whole point is more doesn't actually, well, the first point in the original is quite relevant to most of us is that most of us are have trained, you know, in a particular degree, whether it's project management or engineering or architecture, we, we are experts and actually experts tend to work off of uh, uh, intuition. And, but I think, uh, you know, there's so many new topics coming to the fore, you know, modern methods of construction, net zero, that, that intuition is falling apart because you know, all of a sudden, if I'm the lead designer on a project, that 35 years of uh, intuition, which is what I would have been using in the past, is blown out of the water because I've got to learn about all these new topics. So I think that's why this whole thing about uh, intuition, gut feelings is important. But then the second point is, again, move fast and break things. Well, if you're going to move fast, you, you can't afford to do really detailed research. So at some point in this whole point about uh, doing things fast and using like your gut instinct for, for the way forward is more important than trying to spend another six months doing detailed research, um, you know, to, to come to arguably a more nuanced uh, impact. Now, the third one I thought was really interesting. And it's saying, look, it, you know, and I guess this is where things like optimism, bias and so on come into major infrastructure projects. And what's saying, look, is any project any of us do uh, because it's built into a unique location. You know, you know so if, if it doesn't matter whether it's Apple or Tesla, products are, are, are produced in a much more stable environment. But most infrastructure projects are produced in a very unstable environment. They've all got a unique location. They've all got a unique context. They've got unique politics and so on and so forth. And, and so arguably, there, for a lot of the projects that all of us are working on, there is no optimal strategy because, uh, but the, you know, I think the book points out that there, there's definitely very, you know, good, good, good enough strategy. So, so I guess the big question is, what do we mean by that? Um, and I thought the fourth point here was quite an interesting, is really saying when we develop uh, strategies based on our experience, that we're actually using uh, hindsight and that if you're going to be future facing, hindsight is not necessarily the way that we're going to work. So I thought that was a really interesting, interesting point. And then I've already discovered that, that you know, discussed that bottom one is that sometimes intuition can be, uh, you know, just much, much faster way of moving forward. So that, that's gut feelings. Uh, 
a whole new mind is is really and I, and I actually did a, a talk to a school recently on this because uh, when I was at school I was kind of brought up in maths and physics uh, and then so going into an architecture degree was quite interesting for me and, and sometimes say that I, I, the first two years were I was like a bucking bronco as, as you know the architecture degrees trying to get me to move from left brain to right brain but I mean I guess where most people uh, are, are thinking now is that the if things are rules-based then they'll be on the left-hand side of your brain and therefore uh, there'll be less demand for left brain thinkers in the future uh, and, uh, and and I guess that's the premise of this book and that the, the, the future is about empathy and design and all the things that are not rules-based so a lot of interesting things come out come out of this book and of course uh, it's it's a very sensitive subject because I'm sure a lot of people that are left brain, uh, you know, focused maybe would probably disagree with some of those comments. But uh, I, I, that, that's why I guess why it's it's interesting to open up that conversation. But but certainly, you know, back to my point about user experience, that's all kind of right, right brain thinking, and uh, and I think that's you know I, I can see a lot of arguments in, in the book uh, in terms of the things that I'm doing that. It's, it's trying to get that, you know, create new experiences and so on and storytelling and so on that becomes more important than the, the left brain. But I guess some of the coders and, uh, you know, the people that are involved in some of those creating those rules, maybe that's the, the left brain. So, um, so in a couple of good things come out of that book and I'm sure all of you will have some comments on that. Dale's next book is The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. And then the final one, which uh, is, is really relevant to a lot of my current projects, is that uh, I've done some studies recently where if you, when you look at the permutations that are possible with construction, you, you go into uh, no way beyond kind of billions uh, of options. And, and of course, manufacturing, you know, the, it's, it's quite interesting if you compare the permutation strategy of BMW versus Tesla, they're, they're quite different. Tesla actually has very little choice when you when you're creating a car, and when you actually go beyond BMW, you know I think a typical BMW has something like twenty three thousand choices uh, that, that that can come out of the the different things that you can configure. So I was really interested in this book that actually talks about when you've got too much choice, it actually paralyzes you. It makes it difficult to create, a, make a decision. And, and this one at the bottom, the, the, the book talks about maximizers, which is really people, again, it's, it's, this is where the intuition thing comes back in, who, who don't uh, do, uh, let's say, selecting things. So even if it was, say, picking a new hi-fi, a per perfectionist is gonna go to lots of hi-fi shops, gonna read all the magazines, and then come to a decision uh, about what hi-fi uh, to make, whereas a maximizer maybe does some quick and dirty research on Google and then does an intuitive kind of uh, decision in terms of what to buy. And what the book says is that the challenge for the perfectionists is that things are moving so fast that the second you've spent three months deciding what hi-fi to buy and then you purchase it, the next week an article comes out for a new amp or whatever it might be. And then the perfectionist then is like, oh, I've made the bad decision because if I'd waited two weeks, I would have got this new product. So, so some really, really interesting things in here about how too much choice actually uh, is not a good thing and a, a correct, making the right level of choice is, 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 is the right thing to do. 
uh, and of course, if, if we give people less choice, then uh, it allows, uh, you know, just, I guess it just makes decisions much, much easier. And the third point uh, I think is really interesting is that, you know, through Google, uh, we're actually, you know, making a lot of our choice based on, uh, you know, secondhand information. And I guess this is where things like fake news come into to the thing. So, so a lot of, of things that, that we're using to make choices is not based on our intuition and personal experience it's based on and what we're being fed uh, uh, on uh, from from google and, and other things so so yeah a couple of things coming out of that and uh, so yeah so the, the question here was not not exactly a pithy of a question but it, it was just really about what 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 does everyone think about these different uh, things that come out of intuition or or empathy and, and right brain thinking and what what do we maybe need to to do to to, to manage some of these topics, uh, you know, in moving into the future. I just started a, reading a new book at the weekend and uh, a absolute brilliant book. So here's my bonus book is called Curious. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I say about the people in my team is that I, I think that, you know, passion is really important in the future because there's so many topics that we need to deal with. Um, like trying to press gang people to, to look at things is just never works. So you need people that are passionate. But, but for me, uh, curiosity is a huge thing and I don't find people being curious enough. So I started to read this at the weekend and it's just blown my mind about how uh, curi no, you know, that curiosity has changed over the years because the, no, the Greeks and the Romans were very curious about things. But actually the, the church actually shut down a lot of uh, curiosity in the Middle Ages, because that was seen as deviating from what were views about, you know, religion and so on. So it's quite interesting. There, there's different chapters on this, but they, you know, they talk about the history of curiosity, which I never really thought about before. So it's quite interesting. I've, obviously, I'm only halfway through, so I can't tell you what happens at the end. But <laughs> but I think the, the other thing is that, you know, serendipity is a kind of subset of curiosity. And uh, but I mean, they do talk about the, this topic we're talking about, how uh, Google, you know, is great because it makes it, when we're curious, we, we, you know, instead of going to the British Library and having to spend hours trying to find something, we can find things in, in an instant, but then talks about how that's a bad thing because we're only going skin deep. And it does talk about the disadvantages, well, the, the pros and cons of Google as a, a source of knowledge. So anyway, it's, I'm finding some brilliant kind of takeaways in this book. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's like I say, it just comes back to the point. I, I I don't know where I get some of these books from, but I've got a, a list on my Amazon list, which is I've still got another hundred in there uh, that I keep kind of randomly purchasing. And uh and every book I read, you know, gives me new ideas. So, and and I guess that this is I find reading books is for me that that mechanism of moving beyond the the simplicity of Amazon, if you like, into new topics, which always, um, you know, every day I learn something new, which I think is great, um, and uh, is essential in this kind of age of uh, change.